Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. I'm Karima Talwar-Kapoor. And I'm Alexi White. We have got a great pod for you today. We have uh, Julia Drydeck on to talk about human trafficking in Ontario. It is a super important conversation. Stick around for it. Uh, Julia helps us dive into how the government's approach is actually making progress on parts of this issue, but potentially leaving out impacts on migrant communities. Um, So something that is not often talked about in the media narrative, but is really important to understand. But first, friends, we just went through something groundbreaking, something historic, something that will have consequences for generations to come. That is right, the Ontario budget came out last week. Easily the thing that most people were paying attention to. I know I breathed a huge sigh of relief when it came out. I was super excited when it came out. It was the thing that I looked forward to all Tuesday last week. Just I was checking the, the New York Times every day for news of the Ontario budget. Didn't make it for some reason, but... Maybe next year. <laughs> why do we think they put it out? Like, why why did they put it out on the day after a U.S. election? Obviously, they were trying to, to hide it, which is a very, it's the opposite strategy of most budget. I mean, it, there is legislative timing, but why, why not just plan it, like, plan to be done a week earlier? It was very weird. And they did do some comms on it. Like, there was a video of Doug Ford and Rod Phillips in, like, some kind of, like, hallway where Doug sort of turned to Rob and was like, got my buddy Rob here, and he's uh, prepared a great budget for you. Can't tell you what's in it yet, but... Can't wait for tomorrow. Highly recommended viewing if you haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds riveting. Um, uh, but yes, listener, you can be forgiven for missing Budget Day uh, as you refreshed the news from the U.S. for maybe the thousandth time uh, last week. But don't worry, we've got you covered with a recap this week. We're going to take you through the key aspects of it today, from investments in long-term care and fighting the pandemic to support for business and people and the stuff the government didn't address. There's a lot to talk about in this very special edition of an Ontario Lad Fiscal Update. I know there's supposed to be music here. Cards on the table. Oh, Chris, you forgot the music. I was so excited to see what it would be this time. Uh, Just imagine Darude Sandstorm playing (laughs) in your... in your in your head um nice but nice. if we can get over this uh this really important fiscal update piece uh maybe i want to start with you alexi you've been through the numbers uh i think we were well prepared for a deficit in this budget uh driven by a recessed economy and increased program spending but i'm curious uh from a broad fiscal overview the spending um the uh revenue what did we learn here and what does it tell us about the province's uh finances and uh fiscal plan going forward yeah, so maybe let's just start with this fiscal year. We're in the middle already of fiscal year 2020-21. Uh, and interestingly, the budget showed basically no change to the fiscal picture for this year since the last update. So uh, the bottom line, the deficit is still expected to come in around $38.5 billion for 2020-21. That might not make sense to a lot of people in that they also, I think, announced a ton of new spending on uh, long-term care, on support for people in COVID. So how does that, how do, how do, can they announce a ton of new initiatives and not have the budget deficit grow? Yeah, so that's a great point. Um, people will probably remember earlier this year, the government put aside a whole bunch of contingency funds and those totaled almost $10 billion. So basically what the government did back in the first quarter with their first update after the pandemic, they said uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of pressure in the future. So we're just going to put the money aside now. And that's when we first started to see these really, really big deficit numbers. So this week in the budget, it wasn't really new spending that was announced. It was really just the government revealing its plans for using that huge contingency it had already set aside. So once you factor in all that contingency to offset the new spending announcements, the total spending increase in the budget is only about $400 million. But it was spending they'd already committed to in the plan. Exactly. 
in some fashion. Interesting. What about moving forward? Budgets typically don't just give us one year of detail. They try to project a plan for uh, the next uh, the next several years. And so with these new things they've announced, what does that mean for uh, the years moving forward? They did announce, or they did reveal two more years of budget numbers. So a, a shorter window than we've seen sometimes in the past, but three years is pretty good given the amount of uncertainty that we're seeing. So these were numbers we've seen for the, we're seeing for the first time. So that's, that's probably the more interesting part of this for sure. Helpfully, the budget also separates out what the government considers to be temporary sort of pandemic related spending from the base program spending. So for example, you can see in the budget tables how much of the huge amount of money we're spending in health right now is considered temporary versus how much of it would be theoretically ongoing in future years. So taking just that base program funding first, the government is actually planning a pretty healthy 3% or so increase in healthcare costs over the next two years. And those would just be basic ongoing healthcare costs. And then about 2% or so for the post-secondary education sector, which is also a bit of a change uh, from uh, um, some decreases in that sector we've seen up to now. Uh, other than that, though, in the other big spending buckets, so uh, K-12 education, justice, and social services being the big three, we're actually looking at freezes for the next two years. So more or less 0% increases, which is actually going to be uh, difficult, I think. I mean, the, the, the big question is, is this going to be politically sustainable given demographics and demand drive so much of the costs in K-12 as well as social services, for example? I imagine that they might be thinking that in the base costs, they can get away with that because they have so much they've set aside for emergency measures later on. So I want to ask you about the billions they've set aside for temporary pandemic spending and how how long is it expected to last? And is that going to offset some of these, what I would agree to be considered kind of unrealistic expectations of being able to freeze education funding, for instance? Yeah, uh, that's that's possibly how they're going to handle this. Uh, so the other spending category in the budget, which normally would just track a lot of the small ministries mostly. So you'd have basically every other ministry rolled up into the other spending line, whether it's, you know, transportation or, um, you know, municipal affairs or agriculture, all that kind of stuff. That was $25 billion before the pandemic. And it's nearly doubled to $46 billion this year as a result of all this extra pandemic spending, uh, much of it going into healthcare. So that's expected to drop back down a little bit by about uh, $7 billion or so for the next two years, down to $39 billion. But that's still way above historical levels. So the government has not indicated beyond sort of a drop next year how it's, it plans to get down from that $39 billion back to sort of somewhere closer to the original $25 billion it was spending uh, uh, overall in the rest of the government. So it'll be interesting to watch how fast the government decides to reduce this spending over the next two years, because I think that's going to be a big part of their, at some point, they're going to want to show progress toward uh, at least smaller deficits, if, if not a fully balanced budget. Yeah, and I think they committed to, um, in their next budget, uh, those details, because famously they have needed to amend the uh, legislation that they passed that requires that they present a plan to be able to present this plan, which I uh, is an interesting nuance of this. Before maybe moving on to the specific budget priorities, I just w- want to know if anyone else has any thoughts about like the fiscal picture. Um, what is this? You know, I think it, it's been interesting to me that the media has led so much with this being a big spending budget. Is this how we interpret it? Is it? the right level is, you know, um, what do we think about that? Yeah, I, th- so I think the piece that stuck out for me was was the piece that Alexi already highlighted in. Um, basically, they must be assuming future cuts to 
to education and social services for these numbers to add up because they've already agreed to 1% wage increases, you know, costs like utilities, hydro and things go up by more than 1% a year. And so if you're holding, say, K-12 education at 0.3%, um, you must be assuming future cuts or to Alexi's point that they have some costs that are now temporary that will that will um, uh, subside. But I think um, they have a lot of explaining to do, and this budget doesn't really do that at all. And the fact that they kind of got away with, with that in the media is interesting. Yeah, I'd add that there's not a lot of talk about revenues. So to to get to some semblance of balance or a fiscal a fiscal reality that this government is comfortable with it the focus on program spending often comes at the cost of not thinking creatively about revenues and i know that on previous pods we've talked about how we might want to balance the budget by talking about different mechanisms to raise revenues but the budget actually doesn't really talk about it and if anything it the budget keeps going back to on the government, the Ontario government going to the federal government for support. And whether that's the right thing to do or wrong thing to do, depending on which government has greater capacity to borrow and raise revenues is one question. But I think without a cohesive and comprehensive and collective sort of idea around how the province and the country collect those revenues, program spending cuts can't be the only ways to get to some sense of fiscal balance. And I that's missing in the narrative, for me at least. And maybe uh, the pressure to consider that might be a reason why they, you know, feel the need to fully think through this before actually telling. One of the big missing pieces, and we've heard this from the opposition parties, is on the long-term care pieces. They've done some pretty big long-term care investments, but haven't filled in specifics as to how these are going to be financed. So maybe shift our focus here from the big picture to the specific investments the budget makes. They're focusing on the message that they are going to uh, invest $45 billion over three years in the COVID-19 response. Uh, $14.7 billion of this is new. And so I want to take, so let's take it sort of step by step. 7.5 of the billion of the new investments are in the health and long-term care sector. And it's probably the largest uh, ticket item they've uh, put in their news releases. They want the public to take away that they're investing in this area. Um, and so, Sam, I'm wondering if uh, maybe we can go through some of the highlights and uh, maybe we can take apart their significance at the time when they are. Uh, we, we are continuing to see, of course, COVID cases rise uh, to record levels. Yeah, for sure. And definitely the story of this budget is investments in, in healthcare. So fully 1.4 billion of it is in testing and contact tracing, which you know are temporary costs that will, will subside. And then they basically met the OHAs, uh, the Ontario Hospital Association's requests for permanent um, increases to hospital budgets around, around 900 million is, is it devoted to hospital capacity, 284 to uh, surgery backlogs, uh, another 200 million in PPE. So, um, you know, in many ways, they are spending the the funding that that people are saying that they should. Um, you know, largely using the federal government's money, as just for the record. Um, maybe uh, <laughs> uh, more interesting is in long term care, 540 million in new funding. So that's in addition to the 243 made available last March. Um, uh, most of it for for uh, COVID screening and staffing supports and and um, some stabilization funding, and then um, a three hundred sixty seven million is for the four dollars an hour pandemic uh, pay uh, that is temporary. Um, 
so so you know lot lots in there um no real surprises on on long-term care i think the only thing to note is they have made a commitment to increase average daily direct contact from a nurse or psw for to four hours a day which we had talked about on on some of our last pods Uh, they say they will do that over four years uh, but have not really laid out that clear a uh, plan or timeline on how to how to exactly achieve that um much of the new funding is is directed to covid but um but more so more to come on that but that was the, that was probably the key the key takeaway it's interesting because uh in the response from the opposition the ndp and the liberals i've seen really mixed reviews i think genuine appreciation that the government is at least addressing the long-term care issue but um, tons of criticism, I think, on the lack of detail uh, that has been released on how this is going to move forward. So, I mean, for a, a, a person who wants to sort of track this against the government's response on COVID broadly, I'm curious, you know, what we think of this, like, what we think of the strategy. I'm personally not super comforted by anything that sort of signals that they're still figuring it out in some way, shape, or form. But, you know, uh, none of this is stuff that I would, um, I would, I would criticize. Uh, certainly, um, whether it meets the moment is is another thing. So maybe we'll move on then to the remaining 7.2 billion in new investments centered around support for people and jobs. So basically, all of the COVID response that's outside the healthcare environment. Some of the key highlights in this area uh, that uh, aim to provide support uh, include uh, direct support to small business through property tax and energy bill relief. Uh, notably, they're providing $1.3 billion to medium and large size employers with electricity relief. So uh, a large commitment um, around reducing those sort of fixed costs. Uh, a second round of payment uh, to uh, 200 to $250, depending on the uh, situation of your child, to parents with children for the cost of learning at home. Um, and then just a bunch of tax measures. Uh, they have a tax credit for home renovations for seniors, um, presumably to sort of keep seniors out of long-term care homes, help them stay in their homes, uh, giving municipalities flexibility to cut property tax for small business, and maybe the province will match. So if I were a municipality, I wouldn't be taking that to the bank. Theoretically, municipalities with money, because we all know they're so flush with cash right now, can uh, give small business that flexibility. They're going to be reducing property taxes by lowering the business education tax, uh, which supports school boards at different rates across the province. And they're uh, extending some of the emergency payroll tax exemptions for employers. Um, so a bunch of tax measures based on employers is a, a big portion of the package that they're playing. Uh, and then, yeah, to your point, Alexi, uh, $1.8 billion to future priorities as they arise. So that's the money that they can dip into for future announcements. It's not committed to specific things in this budget. Yeah, I mean the 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 whole approach so far seems like pretty standard conservative fare, give people money or cut taxes even preferably, um, and especially focused on business. Do they have anything, Chris, in there that's more sort of government taking responsibility for economic recovery and sort of making investments leading the way, like that that kind of approach? They had a couple things that I actually was uh, you know, a little bit more surprised uh, and encouraged to see. Um, they had uh, they're expanding broadband internet access in all parts of the province, northern and rural Ontario. It'll be really important to the tune of about six hundred and eighty million dollars. So a really big investment in something super important. Uh, major investments in arts and tourism, uh, including one-time emergency funding for arts institutions like the Arts Council, the Trillium Foundation. Um, they are also providing uh, another $100 million in support for tourism, culture, and sport organizations. And 
perhaps most interestingly, covering 20% of expenses for in-province travel in 2021. So it's a tax credit if you're going to do a staycation, you're traveling in the province, you could claim some of your staycation expenses. So that's I, I something uh, that I've never... I've never seen anything quite like before. You can't see me rolling my eyes. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, three-year funding for the... Uh, there's a three-year funding for uh, a Black Youth Action Plan and four-year funding for something called the Ontario Onwards Acceleration Fund, which is uh, very few details out about right now, but is notionally about piloting new technology that will improve how people experience government services. So lots of companies out there who want to bid in on potentially technology solutions for government can take advantage of that. And that seems to kind of be the flavor of what that's about. Chris, that's that's really interesting. And I think a little less conservative than, than many might have expected. Uh, there's direct government investment in the arts, Black youth initiatives. And it seems like they may be responding to areas of need. Um, in your view, taken together, how should we interpret this strategy on both a policy and a political level? Well, I think Alexi was right in that uh, it seems to reflect a fairly, by and large, a fairly conservative approach to the idea of support. Like the vast majority, if you do the the tally, um, is targeted investments and tax relief to businesses. And that all is all well and good. But if you sort of think about the lobbying process that goes into creating a budget, it really tells you who is in the ear of this government and what is driving their actions and whose voices might be speaking the loudest to the table. Um, Reducing costs for businesses at this point is clearly their priority and sort of far outweighs the spending on support to individuals here. Uh, Even support on tourism, um, you know, for that 20% tax credit. is I mean you can just sort of see like I like that is going to provide economic benefit to um, you know communities across Ontario and business interests across Ontario where you know smaller towns where folks might be going for staycations and stuff like that. So I mean an area that is also disproportionately represented by conservative MPPs. So you can kind of see in what they picked to spend money on or pass tax relief on the priorities. Um, It is worth noting that the largest ticket item in the budget that I mentioned in in my overview was not for business. It was for parents, that $200 and $250 for learner costs at home. I think this is interesting. It's about $380 million in the budget. And the idea of supporting costs of education by providing parents with checks is straight out of the conservative playbook as to how to support learning costs. And I mean, when you consider, I think, deserved and intense criticism on them for supporting their underinvestment in schools, um, I think that that for me starts to look like what could that money have done elsewhere in the budget supporting school? I'm not, you know, like I... It's good, I think, to provide parents with checks for supporting the cost of kids learning at home. Like that's, um, like that is. I'm not saying it's a bad uh, thing to spend money on, but when you consider that that's one of the largest ticket items that they announced, and they're not spending what they need to in schools, it's something that stood out to me. I, just to take a bit of an equity lens on the on the cash or checks to families uh, to support education costs. You know, in the government's defense, we know, at least in Toronto, that the most that students that are staying home tend to be in neighborhoods that are lower income and in or or in racialized neighborhoods. And so um, while I agree that that money could have been 
better spent or additional funds could have been spent in the actual education system. Um, I know that a lot of my progressive peers would would argue with me on this, but I think that if you do take a very blanket um, equity approach from their perspective, they're providing supports where where it's needed. And so, um, yeah, I can see yeah. an argument for it from both perspectives. Yeah. And I think there are good things about this too. Um, I mean, like A, like parents are facing increased costs with kids being at home. Uh, and there is the, the equity lens to that is not to be uh, discounted. And I like, unlike most of the support, uh, they're not, you know, it's not, you don't need to wait until tax time. It's not a tax credit. You can get, it's an upfront check, which is always sort of helpful. But um, I guess I just want to, I, I want to take every opportunity I can, particularly given that we know that schools are, and crowded classrooms in places like Peel are helping drive the outbreak to um, point out the uh, the paucity of investment in our education system. Um, but I, I I agree that it I don't necessarily this is seeing as coming at the cost of that. I I just it's a it's a thing that I um, will, will continue to be a hobby horse. I of think mine. one of the interesting things to me looking at the way that they've decided to support businesses, for example, which is, you know, as we've talked about, this is very, very heavy on business supports. Um, there are, you know, there's the sort of two options for every government when you're in these kinds of situations, right? You can figure out a way to cut a check to somebody to get them through, or you can do something to reduce their costs in some way. Uh, and the government in this case has really chosen the the tax route. And that's pretty typical for conservatives. Uh, they do sort of seem to prefer reducing taxes when uh, looking to stimulate, even though I would argue that most of the evidence on where you're actually going to get your return on investment suggests that there are much better ways than cutting business taxes. Business taxes might actually be one of the lowest things uh, in terms of uh, in, you know encouraging investment and, incur and um, encouraging demand in the, the economy. But the the fiscal piece of it that is really interesting to me too, and that very rarely gets talked about. If you're going to give everybody a one time payment for education, or you're, you know, I think one of the great things they're doing is this this uh, four dollar increase for um, for some frontline workers in the in the healthcare system. These things are all temporary, though, right? And when you're cutting taxes, you notice uh, none of these tax cuts that they're talking about are temporary tax cuts. All of these tax cuts are permanent tax cuts from from the looks of it. So. The government has not only chosen to use the tax system to do this; they've chosen to do it in a way, uh, and they're not really highlighting this. No one seems to be highlighting this, but they're 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 not saying businesses need a temporary tax cut. They're basically foregoing that revenue forever. So we're looking at a billion dollars across this budget that yeah. we're just not going to collect in the future uh, at a time when we're going to be trying to balance the budget. Do you really think we're going to do that? Balance the budget by raising taxes on everyone else? I doubt it. Right? They're going to turn around and come back to us with a with a another budget at the, in the future that says, "Look, guys, we got to get our house in order. It's time for some austerity. We got to cut more things." And meanwhile, we've seen this consistently. Every single budget they put out, there's a there's more of this sort of small tax cuts here and there, and these numbers are adding up. And it's significant foregone revenue that we're just never going to get back. And so, in the meantime, you know, the four dollars an hour for frontline workers is going to expire, those people are going to have to go back to, you know, whatever they had before and the businesses continue to see this benefit in perpetuity. So there's this, 
this disconnect, and I think it's it's just it's not talked about, and it's a it's a it's actually a bigger problem in just the way that we don't really talk about uh, spending on the revenue side of things. So that sort of tax tax based um, uh, spending and foregoing revenue that we could otherwise use on programs, it's this big black hole in public policy. We don't talk about it, uh, and it needs to be better accounted for, and it needs to be uh, better considered the impacts of that kind of thing. Totally. And I, I will just add as proof to your point, Alexi, uh, when I was looking into the business education tax um, and trying to sort of figure out what that would mean, uh, you know, I found a budget submission from 2018 and one from earlier on that. Like this is uh, from the Toronto Financial uh, District um, sort of collective lobby group. And, you know, like there have been for some of these tax measures, there have been increased uh, long-term lobbying efforts that predate the pandemic to address these things. And um, I think it is well worth noticing, at least in as this government governs through the pandemic, how, um, how this can be used to address potentially long-term business interests, um, you know, in the guise of pandemic relief. Uh, not saying that they, they aren't mutually complementary, not saying the tax relief is always a bad thing, not saying that even support for business is a bad thing. It's important in this time in some way, shape or form. But some of the things passed here have been long-term lobby points for some of the folks who have- been Yeah, I mean, even the government doesn't do a very good job of explaining in their budget how these things are supposed to help uh, businesses that have immediate immediate issues. Like it just, it's sort of, there's this sort of, don't, don't look here, we're providing tax cuts to businesses that must be, the best pandemic response we can possibly have. There's no actual sort of logical linking between the the things they're announcing and how that's going to keep um, keep people whole for you know the next few months, which is should really be the goal. Totally. So, in terms of, um, I think like shifting maybe from whose interests the budget addresses to maybe now who we think it leaves out. I'm curious to maybe go to you, Grima, um, uh, and. Uh, when you look at the budget from an equity lens, from a, a like a people lens, from uh, you know whose interests do you see as it potentially uh, being left out of this out of this budget? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Chris. And um, unsurprisingly, um, the the groups that don't have the active ear of the government have, I think, been left out of the budget. And that means that the budget is leaving out some of the people that we know that um, have been the hardest hit by the pandemic. So I'll, I'll just list three things that come off the top of my head. Uh, the first is there's nothing on people living in deep poverty and receiving social assistance. Over the past two years, this government has made some pretty significant announcements on structurally changing social assistance, which could have severe implications on on people receiving social assistance, uh, both people that haven't been working for some time and people with disabilities. And there's actually very few mention of social assistance. It, it just comes up in the in the budget tables or the fiscal tables at the end. Uh, but there's, if you do control find, there's no mention of poverty and there's no mention of inequalities. And I think that that is just so reflective of of the priorities upon which this government is is placing its policy focus. And so it's really ignoring 
the issues that people living in deep poverty are facing, especially as the cost of living for them when it comes to the cost of food, for example, continue to rise without any type of support. Um, there's also nothing on residential tenants or landlords. We know that housing is the biggest line item in a in a household budget and that the labor market and economy is struggling to recover for those who were in lower paid work. We might not be facing an evictions cliff, um, as many have feared, but I think that we're facing a slow evictions drip. We're certainly going to see evictions starting to take place when federal supports start to phase out, like EI and CRB, and the weak labor market recovery for households and workers coincide. Um, the ability to make rent then is weakening for many households, and this has both impacts on not just tenants um, and renter households, but on landlords. And something has to be done to help to help um, this side of the rental market. As folks know, you absolutely need a home to uh, for a safe and healthy. Um, state of being. And so I just don't understand why they haven't said anything on that. And lastly, I'd say that there's there's a lot of mention of childcare, but again, it's reflective of the federal government's uh, investments through the Safe Restart program. And as has been said, women have disproportionately been affected by the pandemic um, in terms of the economic downturn. And as Armin Yonlesian has often said, there is no recovery without uh, she-covery, and that requires childcare. I've butchered her, her line. Um, but there's absolutely no way that a, that a province like Ontario can only sustain its, its childcare sector by relying on the federal government. Uh, they've They've got to think creatively about it, and I'm just I'm mystified that they're not that they're not um, taking it more seriously. Yeah, I want to echo first what Grima said on social assistance, especially. It's uh, it's frustrating to see more and more of these budgets where um, the government doesn't include any kinds of even uh, inflationary increases in social assistance rates. Uh, like social assistance is being cut simply by not keeping up with inflation. Right, this is a really important point. The social assistance rates today are below from a real dollar perspective where they were when when Mike Harris cut them. Uh, we just simply have not kept up with inflation, and there's no interest in this government's part in changing that. Uh, and you know, many governments, including the previous liberal governments, are to blame for dragging their feet on that. But the social, like people on social assistance, are making less than after Harris made those cuts, and I think that's just something that needs to continue to be uh, hammered home and needs to change soon. The other big area that I would note is just completely missing from this budget. I mean, if you look up justice, you're going to get a whole bunch about how they're making investments in online services for people to access the justice system. Uh, and that's great. But I mean, given that people were on the streets a few months ago, is you know investing in our IT system in the justice sector really the, the big change that we need to see? And yet that's front and center in the budget when it comes to justice. Like, that this government has no interest in grappling with these societal questions that are being raised by large swaths of the population. They just see no political interest in it. And so it's gone from their budget. There's nothing about 
about justice and justice reform, which is uh, deeply troubling. I have a, a, a sort of a strategic and political question about this in that we have seen the federal government and the provincial government cooperate on announcements, cooperate on messaging, um, you know, and but with very different priorities. And in, indeed, I think many of the investments the government makes on the things that I would think are the most important, um, like the, the coming investments in childcare, the coming investments uh, uh, and current investments they've made in schools. It seems to me like they might be settling into this sort of thing where they're letting the federal government handle this, the, the social stuff. Uh, and they are sort of filling in the, w- w- what they might it sort of is creating an opening for them to, you know, focus on what they might see more as their constituent interests. And I'm wondering if, if that's the dynamic that you guys think might be playing out um, in caucus or when the premier's office is thinking about these things, because if it were me and I have a hard time putting myself in the perspective of somebody that is not me on this question, I don't know how I would go to work every day and see the numbers that are coming out of schools in terms of new cases and not be like pressing every day for like how a strategy to lower class size, a strategy to like, you know, to get us through this last leg of the pandemic. Um, it's, you know, it, it's baffling to me, but I can, you know, are they expecting the federal government to come to their aid? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think they, I think they, I think they see a lot of federal programs out there. They, they, they are happy to take credit for spending some of the federal dollars that they've received. They feel like they have done uh, a bare minimum to get by clearly on pandemic response or else they would be doing more. So they, they clearly believe that politically this is, this is enough. Uh, and so with the remaining room that they have, which is, which is not much fiscally anyway, they're looking to, uh, as you said, Chris, like, you know, make sure some of those stakeholders who've been lobbying for things that they want for quite some time get enough, you know, enough of the, the signals from this budget that, uh, that they remain happy and, and on board with the, sort of progressive conservative cause. So I, I, I think I, a, the budget is sort of a, a mixture of giveaways to their uh, core constituencies and um, a sort of repackaging uh, or um, expansion of initiatives that are should be should be described as sort of the bare minimum initiatives, like making sure there's enough PPE. Like, yeah, great. That's fantastic. Uh, but that's not exactly a visionary response to getting us through this pandemic. And that's been their mo for months and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon uh, they're they're only going to be doing uh, further interventions if they're dragged kicking and screaming into it it seems yeah i just say that if that's the case that's a pretty myopic and short-sighted approach right like we're coming off the heels of a very significant u.s election and the realities of democracy and the various ways in which people exercise their democracy is is seen and so this this idea that, let's just say in terms of program spending, this the Ontario government is looking for greater supports from the feds on health because they're, the constituency is looking for greater supports in health. But we know that you that the people that that end up in downstream in downstream health care settings, whether it's in emergency departments or in other types of healthcare settings, uh, is is inextricably linked to the social side of things, whether it's people that are living in poverty, whether it's people that are are working in 
unsafe jobs, whether it's people that whatever the inequality is, that there is a huge link between social inequalities and health inequalities. And so to to sort of offset your responsibilities on the social side, because it's not convenient right now, doesn't mean that in the future there won't be a government that sees sees those links. And it just doesn't set up, I think, more existentially our democracy well. And that's probably not a pithy response, but I think it's it's deeply problematic. And um, strengthening our fiscal federalism needs to be something that we really think about coming out of this pandemic. I will, on the topic of things that I don't think strengthen our democracy, uh, in going through the media coverage on this budget, I was just so irritated by the the focus in uh, from many of the major outlets, like and many of uh, them who do a good job covering these things generally, on this being a big spending budget without asking the following question of spending on what? Uh, even in the agenda interview uh, with the opposition critics, um, you know, uh, they attempted to fill in some of that blank. And the question back to them was, well, this is historic spending. What do you say to that? And it's just sort of like, that is just, if that's the level of sophistication we have on these things, that's, we need, we need to address that in the public debate because it's uh, for all of the point you just you just said okay well i think uh that's good we'll we'll leave it there go to a quick break and we'll be back with our interview with uh jula drydeck welcome back i'm alexi white and i'm joined now by julia drydeck a friend former co-worker and now the executive director of the canadian center to end human trafficking She's here to discuss human trafficking in Ontario, the current situation, and the province's policy response. Julia, welcome to Ontario Loud. Thank you so much for having me, Alexi. So Julie and I both had the pleasure of serving at different times as the Senior Policy Advisor for Social Assistance Policy in uh, the Office of the Minister of Community and Social Services back in the day. So shout out to all our MCSS listeners out there. Um, but it's also just great, Julia, to connect again and chat about uh, yet another social policy uh, issue that requires our attention very, very badly. Listeners are likely aware that human trafficking is basically a modern form of slavery where uh, women, men, and children are recruited or obtained and then forced to labor against their will through force or coercion. The United Nations has estimated that human trafficking generates about $32 billion annually for its perpetrators, and um, a recent Global Modern Slavery Index estimate put the number of human trafficking victims at 40 million worldwide as of 2017. But surely it doesn't happen here, I hear you cry. Well, it actually does. And uh, actually, to their credit, the Ontario government has taken some action. Listeners may recall that in March of this year, the Ford government announced a five-year, $307 million anti-human trafficking strategy. So, Julia, I guess my first question is, are we about to talk about a Ford government social services success story? You know what? I think I think we're going to see some successes. They're definitely not where anyone needs to be to be able to absolutely eradicate human trafficking in Canada. Um, when you compare to what the other provinces are doing across the country, Ontario is definitely a leader, um, and they've taken some really actually progressive and meaningful steps, specifically in the last couple of years. But uh, you know, there's still a lot more more to do. Uh, so set the stage for us a little bit more. Uh, what's the human trafficking situation right now in Ontario? 
Yeah, and I just want to start off kind of debunking some myths because uh, that's still kind of where we're at in terms of general awareness on human trafficking in Canada. Um, so one of the misperceptions that we get a lot is that, again, human trafficking is an issue that other countries deal with or that it largely involves migrants coming in from other countries and being sex trafficked in Canada. Really what we're seeing is that this is um, predominantly a domestic issue. Um, so sex trafficking victims and survivors are by and large born in Canada. There are some migrants that come in, but largely we're seeing that these are Canadian born victims and survivors. And also it's not, it's not the type of kind of um, confinement or forcing people by chaining them up to have sex with strangers situation. So what we're seeing largely in terms of sex trafficking is that this is happening uh, through existing relationships. So the, the biggest kind of trend that we see in terms of sex trafficking in Canada is what we call the boyfriend pimp or the boyfriend trafficker. Um, and that's someone who specifically places themselves in someone's life as uh, an intimate partner or someone that can be trusted. Um, and over time, uh, through a process of what we call luring, grooming, uh, moving into coercion and, and manipulation, coercing them into uh, sex work. And there uh, we see also that largely traffickers will end up, you know, taking all of their proceeds um, and where the individual has absolutely no control in terms of who they're seeing, how many people that they're seeing, um, and, and what they're doing. The other thing that people are not giving enough attention to right now is labor trafficking. And this is a really significant issue across the country, but especially in Ontario. Um, we've seen a little bit more profile of this recently given COVID, but really uh, our understanding and the numbers when we look at labor trafficking, both in in Ontario and across the country is just the tip of the iceberg. And a big part of that is because we're just not putting the targeted resources into reaching those communities and also um, in quantifying and supporting those individuals. And where we see labor trafficking taking place, that is largely where we're seeing migrant um, migrant workers and individuals. Um, so, so we see it a lot in terms of our agricultural sector and also in terms of food production and manufacturing, but also there's significant trends in uh, home care. So uh, where we see temporary foreign workers coming in, providing nannying or other type of, um, right, of home course. care services. Um, so there, there's a very long-standing trend. Uh, and we also see a lot of overlap in terms of both sex and labor trafficking for those individuals, where uh, those migrant workers, and there's a trend that they're often uh, coming from the Philippines, may be both forced into labor and, and forced into um, sexual activities as well. Right. Um, and what about the data side of things? I know the federal government uh, did a report, uh, the federal, uh, one of the committees of parliament uh, in 2018, and they noted that uh, the data on this is terrible, uh, partly because of definitional issues, uh, partly because we just, as you said, we haven't reached out to the communities that we need to reach out to to really get a sense of how bad some of this is. And um, what's reported is probably just the tip of the iceberg. So do you have a sense of uh, any sort of quantifiable numbers or any work going on to try to get a sense of that in Ontario and the comparative, uh, you mentioned both sort of sex trafficking as well as uh, labor trafficking, like what, uh, how big those issues are compared to one another? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll start off in terms of just the challenges with our existing data set. And one of the problems is that all of the data that has been compiled to date comes through the Uniform Crime Reporting Survey. 
So previously, when we're looking to quantify the scope and scale of human trafficking in Canada, it's only those cases that have been reported and recorded um, by law enforcement. And if you if you just kind of put any kind of decent thought into the issue, um, you're going to realize that that is only going to cover a very tiny fraction. Um, if you compare sex trafficking to other forms of like rape and sexual violence, we know that that is also almost impossible to quantify because people do not report to law enforcement. And part of that is also because our judicial systems are not set up to actually support um, victims of sexually based crimes or gender based yeah. violence. Yeah. Similarly, when we're dealing with migrant workers, a big part of it is that recruiters and, and labor traffickers will come in and also often lie to them about their rights and potential risks as well, um, and use that as uh, a way to kind of manipulate them into, again, this forced labor. And so they're terrified of going to the police. Um, they're being told that they're going to get deported, that they've broken laws. Um, and so there's all of these inherent barriers that just mean that people are not going to go through law enforcement, which means that that data is just not even close to capturing the extent and scale of human trafficking. Um, also, we don't have consistent or reliable training on human trafficking across all of our various law enforcement units in Canada. The good news is, is that's where the Canadian-centered <laughs> oh, good, human trafficking comes in. Yeah. So tell me a bit about what your center does and what you guys are doing in service advocacy, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, and, and, and specifically around data capturing as well. So um, we we work as kind of the national backbone agency on this issue. So you know, our, our major priority is kind of to try and really advance the movement through convening, research, partnership, data collection, and advocacy. And and a big chunk of that um, is that we also operate the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline. So that's the first ever national, 24-7, completely confidential, multilingual hotline that is focused specifically on supporting victims and survivors of human trafficking and also helping ask questions, answer questions. Um, while the very first priority of that hotline is to provide that immediate trauma-informed victim-centered support to callers, we have a back-end process where we anonymize and capture data on all of the calls um, that come in to us. So we're able to capture information in terms of you know, who is calling general demographics um, that they provide to us in terms of, and as, as well, the types of trafficking that they're experiencing. Great. Well, turning to evidence-based public policy, I guess, uh, what um, what do you think about Ontario's anti-human trafficking strategy? Uh, it's it's very focused on sex trafficking from my, my perspective. Uh, and so they've sort of got these four sort of pillars of the strategy, I guess you could call them. There's uh, pieces of it that are about uh, raising awareness, which obviously we need to do a huge amount of work to raise awareness of sex trafficking um, and, and human trafficking in general. There's a bunch of stuff for um, protecting victims and intervening early, which I think is probably some of the more interesting and difficult work in terms of how do you actually stop people from ending up in this um, this kind of exploitative situation. Uh, supporting survivors, pretty self-explanatory. And then there's uh, holding offenders accountable. So um, mostly investments in policing and um, uh, prosecutorial capacity there. On the sex trafficking side, they've been really strong. I think we're seeing some some really positive movements, but uh, I got to echo what you're saying and that there is a comprehensive gap in their um, approach around labor trafficking. Um, so I think it's it's quite evident that that is not a priority of this strategy and that they're very much focused on sex trafficking. Um, and that's a major gap that we recognize and, and have spoken about. But in terms of sex trafficking, you know, it, it's a really good overall approach. 
Um, it also aligns generally with both the UN and the Palermo Protocol strategy in terms of how to address human trafficking. Um, I think they talk about it in terms of the four P's, partnership, uh, protection, prevention, and prosecution. Right. Um, and so they're, they're kind of looking at it from all of those angles. That approach has also been taken up by the federal government. Um, and, I, and I have to say, too, that, you know, what they've been developing uh, has really responded, I think, in many ways to um, what folks on the ground are saying and what they have been saying in terms of what the needs are. Um, so, again, there's always more work that needs to be done. Um, and, you know, they just actually launched a new um, awareness and prevention campaign um, focused. Um, part of it is uh, an Indigenous led human trafficking awareness campaign. The other one is focused more on um, young people. It's called The Trap. It's like an interactive uh, simulation that they can do to kind of understand what the stages of Lauren grooming really look like. I got to say, it's very innovative. That's and quite cool. Well done. Yeah. That's great. Um, so you actually go through and it's like it's like you're on, you know, texting with someone and you can respond and you kind of see what the different strategies are in terms of how people kind of get lured into this and how traffickers really prey on the um, emotional and social vulnerabilities of individuals. Yeah. Um, so it really is. And again, you know, we talk a lot about how Indigenous folks are overrepresented, LGBTQI folks, um, people living in poverty, um, youth coming out of the foster care system. Yeah. And all of that is true, but it's because we see that they are trends in terms of the um, really intense social isolation and, again, uh, emotional vulnerability that those folks have. They, they fill gaps in their lives where they feel like they need to feel loved and supported, um, where someone actually gets them. Um, they build that bond in that real kind of trauma bond with an individual, and then they start pulling it back. And they pull back that love and that attention in order to get them to do things for them. And it, and it can start you know, small in terms of getting them more comfortable or open to different types of sexual activities they might not have done before. And then it can really quickly escalate into um, a, a full out human trafficking situation. Maybe this is a good time to ask about the relationship between sex work and human trafficking. You've talked a lot about sort of sex trafficking, and I know that this is a very divisive issue, but um, when the federal government was considering uh, human trafficking in their 2018 report, uh, there were people testifying on both sides at the committee, uh, some arguing that sex work is inherent inherently exploitative and is, you know, all sex work is, should really be considered a form of human trafficking. Others coming from a completely opposite perspective saying we need to decriminalize this. Uh, it needs to not be underground. Uh, we need to, uh, you know, take more of a harm reduction approach. That's how we're going to tackle human trafficking. Uh, how do you, I mean, how, how do we as, as listeners and society sort of handle the interaction between human trafficking and sex work? Yeah, and, and, you know, you're so right in that this is an incredibly divisive issue. Um, and I find sometimes when we talk about, you know, the moral values of whether or not sex work should exist, it really takes us away from the actual conversation um, to address the fact that exploitation is happening today and we need to do something about it. Um, so as an organization, we uh, intentionally do not take a stand and we are not interested in um, delving into that conversation too much. Um, it's incredibly important that everyone recognize that there is a 
real difference between human trafficking and consensual sex work. They are very different things. They're very different things as it's described by law um, and in terms of also, you know, the criminal code definition of human trafficking, but they're also completely different experiences from a lived experience perspective. Right. So we recognize um, absolutely from, you know, a policy and legislative perspective perspective that there is a real difference between sex work and human trafficking, um, but human trafficking exists within the industry of sex work. Mm-hmm. But I really do urge everyone to also just focus on where exploitation is um, and to really kind of hone in on that rather than trying to boil the ocean and and to say that, you know, morally, you know, with one fell sweep, we can just end all, all social evils um, in, yeah. in one move. Turning back to the the migrants and um, some of the labor uh, trafficking, the with the province, is there an argument the province might make that, um, for instance, because the federal government is responsible for immigration, because the federal government has control of the criminal code, there's sort of less that they can do to tackle this issue, and that um, some of these things just have to be handled more by the federal government. And what, how is that sort of federal provincial responsibility divided from your perspective when it comes to uh, stopping human trafficking? I mean, I think they're both accountable. I don't buy it that the province doesn't have a role in this because the province is responsible for labor law enforcement, right? Right. So in any other sector or industry, and granted, some also really struggle, right? Like Ontario is not perfect in terms of labor rights <laughs> and enforcement. Far from it. We know that very well. Um, but there's way more work that goes into enforcing labor laws in pretty much every other sector. Yep. And so, yes, the federal government has an absolute responsibility in terms of making sure that the temporary foreign worker system isn't inherently set up to produce exploitation, which in some ways it is right now. Let's be honest, the way that the system is set up, you know, uh, makes it easier to exploit folks um, in part because uh, temporary foreign workers don't have the same labor rights um, as uh, other folks working on other types of uh, work permits uh, in Canada, let alone Canadian citizens or permanent residents. Um, But that really does fall to the province. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, being a a migrant laborer, I'm sure they suffer from a lot of the same issues of loneliness and isolation, uh, you know, language barriers, things that, as you mentioned, with the sex sex trafficking as well. I mean, it's a it's a high risk population for being taken advantage of for so many different reasons. Um, And a lot of this stuff is evident, right? Like they could see this stuff through inspections. Like it's really just about making sure that the enforcement is there to ensure that people are actually abiding by the laws. In many ways, if you look at ending human trafficking, which is you know, the business I'm looking to put us out of. Mm-hmm. Ending labor trafficking is pretty straightforward. We've got laws and rules in place. You just need to enforce them. And I think that could come with some potentially really big trade-offs and risks, especially if you look at what the impact could be on our overall food prices, right? right? Like so much of our food um, and agricultural system and, and the prices that we pay um, at the grocery store Um are because we're able to reduce costs through the temporary foreign worker system. Right. That's a great point. So thinking back to the Ontario government's motives in this for a second, I'm just sort of interested. I mean, you you speak to them about human trafficking. It sounds like they're quite receptive to your organization's input, which is fantastic. Uh, they have definitely shown leadership on this issue. You mentioned Ontario is a leader among provinces. I mean, even at the federal level, I think it was 2012, there was a big federal strategy on human trafficking while Stephen Harper was uh, prime minister. 
So, I mean, what is it that um, th- that makes this issue get so much attention from this government in Ontario, from conservative governments, um, when at the same time we've seen them trying to cut or at least freeze spending on so many other social programs? Do you have sort of a like a, a theory on that? Um, and, and I'll say, yes, the conservatives absolutely um, across the board and across jurisdictions support this. So do the liberals um, and so do the NDP for the, for the mar- large part, although not as much as the liberal conservatives. The and it's weird saying this. The nice thing about this issue is that in many ways it is quite apolitical. Yeah. Um. So we do have buy-in and support from from across uh, party lines, and part of that is just the the reality of how incredibly gruesome and atrocious this crime is. Generally speaking, individuals who are sex trafficked are often put on quotas. We know that quotas imposed are often $500 to $1,000 a day. Um, depending on the area of the sex market, they can receive between $200 and $400 um, an hour um, or, or per client. But uh, basically, you know, th- this could mean anywhere between 5 and 10 uh, for se- sexual interactions a day. Um, and, and part of the reality of that, too, is if you break that down by month and by year, um, if you think about the trauma that one rape can have on someone, um, and then if you look at multiplying that by five for every day that they're being trafficked, um, and then times 30 for every month that they're being trafficked, you're sometimes looking at hundreds of four sexual interact, um, interactions. Yeah. Politicians are also human beings. And I think just the reality of that is startling and upsetting and disgusting for many people. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. I think the where it gets maybe more interesting to me is the uh, the sort of proximate causes. Like, why do people get into a situation in which they can be trafficked? I mean, obviously, it, there are people who are trafficked all across the income spectrum from all kinds of different groups. But you mentioned that certain groups are more likely to to experience human trafficking and be victims of human trafficking. And it strikes me that those there, there are reasons for that that have to go back to historical oppression of those groups, that go back to continued poverty for those groups. And I don't necessarily get the sense that this government is as interested in talking about those issues uh, that seem to be really root problems that would really help to solve this issue. The, the human trafficking, anti-human trafficking strategy that they've put out is great from the perspective of once someone has fallen into a problem where they might need some help. Uh, but it really isn't taking sort of that systemic intersectional look at human trafficking in any way. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Um, I think it's fair. I mean, they have signaled that they are looking into a comprehensive like review of the foster care system and the children in care system. Yeah. What that looks like is still to be determined and uh, is also work that is far, far, far overdue. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what that looks like. I think they've recognized that that is absolutely part of it. Um, you know, you're also right. You can't start, you know, grabbing from other important social programs and imagine that it's not going to have an impact on human trafficking. Because um, especially when you're cutting income supports, pushing people into poverty, but also where you're cutting out um, community programs. Yeah. Right. Like a big part of it is also for folks having a place to go. Um, and especially for those youth that are getting recruited into human trafficking, often the difference is just having one adult in their life that cares. Right. And not everyone has that in their lives. Right. Right. Yeah. And that is the value of community agencies and school systems and the broader social support network to make sure that no kid is being left behind. Um, and you can't pull money from those resources and expect there not to be an impact in terms of the vulnerabilities that youth are facing in the province. Tell me about uh, 
the impacts of the pandemic quickly. Um, I know we've covered on this pod before uh, some of the the startling uh, data that's come out on the uh, increases in, for example, gender-based violence as a result of COVID. Uh, what are you seeing in sex trafficking just in the last sort of six months? Yeah, we get asked this question a lot. And so actually one of the things that we were able to do is uh, – we haven't been able to glean too much out of it yet, but we created a COVID-19 tag in our data entry system. So over time, wherever COVID has come up in any of our calls and summaries, we're going to be able to do some data and trend analysis to see from the caller's perspective what the impact was. Um, I have to say there's no significant or attributable increase or decrease in our call volume um, as a result of COVID. Part of, you know, the impacts of COVID are also more in terms of how things are playing out. So at the very beginning um, of COVID, we were receiving um, a significant more number of calls um, that had to do with emotional support. So COVID, just the additional stress and anxiety of COVID on top of a lot of the post-traumatic stress um, that survivors were facing, um, but also uh, some folks also talking about how the limitations and restrictions of COVID um, were re-traumatizing because it felt like the same control that they were under when they were being trafficked. Right, right? of so course. There's a lot of kind of psychological impacts there. Um, but also access to services um, has also been incredibly challenging. So I guess last question, uh, if, we're, if you're a listener to this and you are depressed likely by what you're hearing, um, what, can, what can you do to help? What can individuals do uh, other than continue to you know, talk to our political um, leaders about the importance of uh, doing more to support and end human trafficking. I think it's important that people really try and reach out to education and awareness materials to really understand what we're talking about. Um, human trafficking can be so incredibly hard to identify. Um, and part of it is because it's such an incredibly like manipulative and exploitative um, emotional system that's taking place um, and exists along a continuum of exploitation. So I think really becoming familiar um, with the signs um, of human trafficking and, and folks can learn more about that at our website at www.canadiancentertoendhumantrafficking.ca. Um, and then, of course, another shameless plug, if you're concerned, if you want more information, if you think you might be seeing things um, that, that you think might be human trafficking, um, or you might be in that situation, folks should call our hotline, 1-833-900-1010. Um, we are there to provide information, support, referrals. If someone's in that situation, or if you think someone might be in that situation, we can do safety planning, um, making sure to connect folks with those services that are available in their community, um, and especially those services too, where there's someone on the other end um, who is trained and who understands and who can provide um, the right services. Great. Thanks, Julia. Uh, that was fantastic. Um, once again, everyone, that was Julia Drydeck, Executive Director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Alexi. That's all for today's episode. Don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app and across social media. If you have thoughts on what you heard today, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com and we will get back to you. Ontario Loud is produced and co-hosted by Sam Andrew, Alvin Tejo, Chris Martin, Grima Talwar-Kapoor, and me, Alexi White. Harman Mundi provides research support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can visit patreon.com slash ontarioloud or ontarioloud.ca and click on the Patreon link. Thanks for listening. <laughs>